Every time you see a big cybersecurity crisis or incident like Colonial Pipeline, SolarWinds, Log4j, business leaders and boards rush out to invest more in monitoring and detection technologies. But are we neglecting the roads and bridges of data protection and access management? Welcome to the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast for June 2022. I'm Ken Cadet. With me is Anadeep Parhar, Chief Information Officer at Entrust and a member of the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute. Hello, Anadeep. Hi, Ken. Um, our topic today is protect versus detect. Why do the investments in cryptography infrastructure, access and policy management that protect your organization and data remain a harder sell? To help us figure this all out and talk it through, we've invited our Entrust Cybersecurity Institute colleague, Dr. Polly Serdhar, to join us. Polly is Director of Product Security and a longtime expert in data security and encryption. Hello, Polly. Hey, Ken. Um, hi, Anadeep. Um, really great to be here. I'm so excited to kind of explore this topic with you guys. Um, I'm going to start with you, Anadeep. We've talked about this a little bit. And you know, talk to us, um, you know, talk to us, talk to our audience about this tension between protect versus detect. So this is a really interesting topic uh, in Ken and Pali. You know, it used to be that it was a little bit exclusive in terms of saying that you, when the perimeters, so to speak, the cybersecurity perimeters were were different, protection was the way to way to protect your organization. You know, there was a lot of technology even back in the day, things like you know antivirus, etc., or firewalls. They were invented, so to speak, to put a perimeter. The old school way of doing things. It's like put a perimeter, make sure people don't come in. That's still very valid. It's it's. So from my seat, it's not protect versus detect. It's actually, you got to do both of them. And, and the balance that CIOs and CISOs and, and the boards and the C-suites are dealing with is how to sort of balance investment in both of them, like Pali referred to early on. So from my point of view, both needs to be done. I think uh, it, in my point of view, if you, it's better to protect and prevent if you can uh, and invest, it's a harder business case to make because it's protection against something that may or may not happen. But if you are in the response world, it's a, it's a lot more easier concept to understand. You know, it, it's a well understood or acknowledged fact today is that organizations can get breached or they could have ransomware attacks, etc. And it, it, the natural reaction is how do I respond to it? So the respond business case is a lot more easier to make. But I always push out of my peer group as well as you know the, the folks that I hang out with is like, no, our job is to make a case for protection, put better locks so that you can prevent the future. It's uh, it's like, can you and I talk about this stuff and probably we've discussed in the past as well. The best thing I can tell my CEO is you, you explain exactly what happened with a breach or what the cyber issue was. And you end the call by saying, and we were protected. Don't worry about it. We're good. So it's an FYI and we are covered. It's a very, very high standard to meet, but that's sort of how I look at it. And I think the business challenge comes is, how do you work with the, uh, with the organization to balance the investment as well as the business case for both protect as well as detect? So Anadeep, I think that's kind of a, a really interesting way to look at it um, because I think there's an element of um, education within the board as well. Um, you know, I sit at probably one end of, um, you know, the protection cycle. So if, you know, the, the whole thing about, you know, understanding a kill chain or how we attack a system, it means that you kind of, you do reconnaissance, 
you come in at the perimeter and then you dig through the different layers right into the you know the the sensitive assets and i think you know for for the longest time as you say it's um it, it's almost glamorous and attractive to say i've defended and i've got metrics to say i've defended against attacks on my um, firewalls on my edge or the perimeter um it's very difficult to actually say hey by the way um we we managed to actually defend uh, against some attacks or prevent attacks because um, they weren't even able to get in or, you know, they weren't able to do the reconnaissance or they, they didn't get a foothold. Those things are hard to measure. Completely agree. I think it's always, you know, in, in the traditional business financial terms, right? It's very hard to make a case for cost avoidance or avoidance of certain things. It's always a lot yeah. easier to make for, for an outcome. And, and that's, there underlies the challenge, right? Is how, how do you do this and how do you make uh, a, a business case for protect. Fortunately, the way I see it is, and Ken, you know, we talk about this stuff. It's a, I, I think organizations are realizing it. And in my view, one of the biggest sort of drivers for this realization, as well as acknowledgement in the industry, is just the speed, just the speed that is required to respond, in, 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 and not to sort of, you know, I'm using air quotes. It's like you have to plan, you have to do a lot more protect even to respond very quickly. Things, think, about, think about ransomware. Uh, if any organization is unfortunately in a situation where you, ha where you have to respond to a ransomware incident, there is a lot of planning and protection that is needed in order to respond to it. It's not a, it's not a simple decision to make anymore. So I think organizations increasingly are seeing the speed and the level of, uh, the level of impact that some of these breaches have you, you are forced more and more towards putting protective technology so you can sort of help actually respond to some of these incidents much faster as well. Bali, what, what do you think? I've just kind of been mulling that over in my head and the, one of the words that's stuck in there is actually to do with responding. And, um, you know, I think that's, you know, right now, as you say, we're in this place where we sit um, and literally um, you, you're in the mode where you, you respond to something that happens to you. And your argument, um, you know, in terms of saying let's bolster up the, the infrastructure and make ourselves security aware or um, so more security opinionated is actually to assume that we are already under attack. And I think that's where the state where we are right now is that, hey, by the way, don't don't sit and wait for it to happen. It's already happening. Um, so I don't know whether that mindset re resonates with yourself, but. That's how I see it. I said, you know, we've got to make sure that we have it. Security is, you know, a set of layers. It's not just you, uh, a gateway at one point. It, it, it's basically like an onion. You've got to make sure that you have defense in depth. Um, it, so, uh, yeah, just I don't know whether that sits well with you or whether that's a controversial or not. No, not at all. And, you know, Ken, it'll be interesting to see sort of from a, from a consumer of cybersecurity as, as a colleague, either, how do you guys see it? We, in our, in the discipline of sort of protecting or in, in the IT discipline of information security discipline, Pilot, to your point, it's, it, we don't assume that something may happen. You, you have to be under the impression, how do you respond when something has happened? How do you go back and take a look at, you know, are you preventing enough? You know, uh, you know, so so that's an absolute you know way way people are looking at it right now, uh, and that happens in terms of even sort of forming governance structures within organizations to be able to say, 
if something happens and when something happens, do we have the appropriate, you know, for example, tabletop exercises? Do we actually, especially in this in this hybrid and very global workforce, can we bring people to the table to respond to the said incident, to make the decisions? And as some of these uh, incidents are, are, the impact of these incidents is increasing, what happens is you're going higher up in the organization. Some of the decisions you need to make, you need the C-suite. And for some of them, like ransomware, you need board input as well. And in order to do that, you need to be able to have mechanisms in place where you have tested it, you have uh, done it on a show, how are you going to actually do this? And if it happens, how are we going to make decisions? And you have to do tabletop. So, so you're absolutely correct. You have to assume something has happened. You have to be extremely prepared and do dry runs. So how are you going to make decisions? Because... Uh, you know the, the company's reputation, the, the the revenues, as well as your your reputation with the customers and the industry is online when, when something like this happens. The, the challenge is often that um, you know if every if if everybody's under attack, no one is, right? You know, so it's like if we're always under attack, you know, how do you deal with that? And of course, when everything starts to hit the headlines, you know, as right. as you guys have been saying, when everything starts to hit the headlines, there's like an immediate reaction to go out and figure out how to respond to that, you know, versus that, you know, versus that, you know, different sense of urgency. It sounds like you're talking about when there's, you know, to, to defend all the time. But, you know, that's um, a, this is really the interesting point, right? Where in order to, to respond, you have to do a lot of preventative work, which is you have to yeah. invest time, energy, and technology in preparing for, Pali, like you mentioned, a, a potential, you know, incident. So it sort of goes, uh, you know, to the previous point of the uh, or the topic of the discussion is you have to take a lot more preventative measures in order to be able to respond to the said incident appropriately. And yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it's an interesting time for uh, information technology professionals to be in this space. It's a it's a fantastic time because uh, you know both ends in terms of the protect technology or the processes and the mechanisms to be able to just put the foundational infrastructure in place. It's not a choice anymore, especially with digital transformation happening pretty much across the across all industries. There are certain givens. It's you know it's equivalent of a, a, a not to 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 say it that way, but it's 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 uh, you know these are appliances. You know I don't, I don't go to places where there's no you know heat or cold or water. I don't go go to places where there isn't enough protective infrastructure, uh, and we are seeing that it, it, it manifests itself in real practical uh, business conversations. You know, usually in the past, what used to be in CIO uh, in a rank, so to speak, is like you can go buy cyber insurance. So that's a really interesting point, uh, Anadeep. The the whole thing around cyber insurance and perhaps the legal aspects, and you know, the board actually sits up and listens when there's an element of understanding where the liabilities lie. Um, one of the situations that we're in right now is actually, um, if you look at it and stood back and looked at how the situation works, is the guys in black hats can attack anywhere. And the guys in white hats have to defend everywhere. And that whole point around the, the economics of how this thing works means that you're already on a losing game. So we do have to get to a default where you know we are being able to keep safe and prevent harm and that's you know the whole notion of protect rather than rally and defend and so um you know the uh, one of the things that sort of been thinking about while i was preparing for for this discussion was 
Um, I thought, how does it work when, you know, people talk about infrastructure and they um, are now being enticed into the wonderful world of cloud where they have some promises. So, so our dear um, cloud providers are saying, hey, by the way, you stick your stuff in here, we'll, we'll deal with the infrastructure type of challenges. And we can give you some assurance. We can put an ISO badge on it or ISO 27001 badge on this thing and you're good to go. But what they're not actually telling you is actually the biggest problems in that space are your, your finger trouble, the configuration errors that actually lead to security breaches. So understanding the security model in there, you know, security of cloud versus in cloud is not really well understood and where you keep your assets and secrets is not understood. But, um, I, you know, it, I think it, it is, you know, uh, quite an emotive topic for me. So um, uh, I don't know what your thoughts are. And I think sort of coming back, that's probably maybe something that reflects on where we've, what we've seen on the Ponemon report um, with some of the values and saying, okay, is it influenced by um, people shifting to cloud, uh, maybe under some kind of um, false pretense, to my mind. I mean, and I, I know I'm being very strongly opinionated here. No, no, and absolutely. And, and why don't we actually, you know, you mentioned the Ponemon report, and we've actually just released that um, into the world. Um, this is the, the, the 2022 Global Encryption Trends Report that Ponemon conducts every year. Um, and it actually, they actually came up with a couple interesting stats. Let me read a couple to you and I'd love to hear your reaction to it. Um, one of the things we saw, which, which seems to be really good news, is that um, there was a big jump in companies applying encryption policies consistently. You know, this is IT Pro saying my company applies encryption policies consistently, and that jumped from fifty percent to sixty-two percent of respondents. So that was, you know, that's that seems really positive. The other thing we saw is that for for encryption rates across several categories, some of them kind of some of them pretty sensitive, either remained flat or or dropped. So like respondents reporting encryption of financial records dropped from uh, fifty-five to forty-five percent. Uh, Payments and data, or payments, sorry, payments data from 55 to 43%. And then encryption rates for like IP, HR data, and financial records stayed pretty flat, but they kind of hovered between like 45 and 47%. Um, so I'm curious what this says to you, where you see like more, more people are saying, yes, we're doing encryption policies and we're applying them consistently. And yet there's still this big gap on how much data is being encrypted. You know, what kinds of, what, what does that say to you? So I'll start. I'll be really interested, Pally, what do you think, right? I think this is a, this is inertia. This is really, from my point of view, this, we should all be taking note of this stuff. It, what, the, what the data tells me is there is acknowledgement and understanding that this is needed, but executing is not happening. And this is a trap a lot of organizations fall into. And, and, and without being too sort of pejorative about this stuff, this is hard work. This is not sexy work in order to protect, right? This is not heroism, this is planning, this is hard work to put the fundamentals and the basic infrastructure in place. And I get really worried when people acknowledge uh, uh, to say, yes, encryption is needed, but I do not have the time or talent or uh, the inclination to actually go encrypt my data. And that's that's very worrisome. The good thing is that the information is public and that's where people like us, we need to sort of continue pushing in terms of the right policies, the right talent, and the right focus on rewarding this behavior within organization. 
you have to actively celebrate the fact that we are putting a, a lot of these protective controls. This is not a choice anymore you know, for organizations. If we do not do this, you will fall into uh, an incident and it'll look really stupid when you look back at it. I knew what needed to be done. I just didn't put it. It's kind of like having an alarm system, uh, uh, alarm system at home that you never use. Then you're, you know, you're twice as stupid. Once you spend the money to get the alarm system. Second, you actually don't use it. So you, so, <laughs> so you have to do both of those things. Pali, what do you think? Um, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's you know quite concerning when you sort of read, say, it's actually HR data, financial rec- records um, that are actually not being paid much attention to in that regard. In fact, um, you know. Again, I, I sort of hark back to the point around education and saying, actually, do we actually understand the impacts of these things? We only respond when there's a, a big breach reported in the papers or, um, you know, when you say there's a been, been a big ransomware attack and that's hitting your pocket. Um, right now, I don't think there's any legislation or regulation forcing people to follow, you know, encrypt records beyond what they, they do. So I think they... they they, we, we're going to talk about compliance later on, and which can be a, a bit of a tick box exercise. So I think what people do is they incentivize to do the bare minimum in security um, and get away with it because that's what they do, but not for the right reasons. And um, and I'm saying the right reason is do it to be safe and secure. Um, but I will bang on that drum for forever because it's my role. <laughs> I see investments going into, as a result of some of this data, you know, I think that's why having some of these studies and as well as, you know, having the data can, you know, publicly available and having a dialogue like we are having about this stuff is we need to shift some investment into putting some of these controls, right? Discovering, uh, having an organization within, within, you know, your IT organization or the broader risk organization to be able to say that we need to actually know where our assets are. You know, not from a traditional asset management perspective, but you know, cri- cri- cryptographic assets are hard. These are uh-huh. these are they are buried deep in the organization, and actually investing willingly as well as very consciously and deliberately into saying we got to have discovery exercises to find where some of this uh, crypto is. If you do it once, if you go through that work and create a baseline, in my opinion, that really helps you sort of build on that and, and put more sophisticated things in place. Uh, so, you know, so from my seat, that's one of the biggest things we can do in addition to educating our folks. I think you got to celebrate some of this work, which is very, very difficult for organizations to do because this is, uh, you know, the traditional uh, person behind the person uh, type work that just gets done. And the only time it gets noticed is if it doesn't work. So you have to celebrate that, yes, we are actually protecting this and then putting in enough sort of investment behind discovery and continuous understanding of your assets as well as where uh, some of these encryption assets sit and that's 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 a hard exercise but the good news is there are a lot of new technologies as well as constructs of how to organize are coming uh, coming into place and and at some point i think we should talk about that as well ken so anadeep you talk about assets and encryption assets and i think that might be something that perhaps creates some confusion in in the worlds that we live in because to my mind, I would also regard data itself and the aggregation and use of it uh, as an asset. And so, you know, many people, I suppose, you, you take things at face value. But when you 
you, you put things together, you, you know, chunks of data from different places, if I aggregate those, allows me to build up a profile or um, so I could either build a threat with it or I could build, you know, an extra opportunity. And if we take them in isolation, they seem like fairly benign. But I, I think maybe, you know, there's some bits where people are missing the picture as well and saying, okay, um, I'm going to protect pretty much all my crypto keys um, and that's all I'm worried about rather than some of the elements and the metadata that um, also relates to them. Um, you know, it's a, it's quite a tricky one, but you know, when you start looking in the space, they, it's still part of that kill chain I mentioned before. It's incredibly complicated once you, as you start to get into that. Um, I, I'm kind of curious, you mentioned compliance earlier and I'm just thinking about uh, what what is the role of compliance and how does compliance help with this kind of prioritization or setting baseline standards? I, I know that like after you know we, we started out talking about some of those big high profile events and those have really driven a lot of work in regulation, certainly in the U.S. I, I think around the world as well. Um, but you know how how should how should government? I mean, but I mean obviously compliance isn't a one size fit all, fits all or it is a one size fits all, but it doesn't fit. It doesn't actually protect your data for you. Uh, you know, what is the role of compliance? Should the compliance regimes be stronger? Should um, you know? Should enterprises and governments address you know that need for baseline standards? Um, how does how does innovation help that sort of thing? What do you what do you think? So I've got some really interesting views on this, and uh, we've probably spent too much time chasing after the different badges like FIPS and Common Criteria, and uh, you know even NATO type sets. Compliance is does an interesting thing in the fact that it actually gives you the tickets to go to the ballroom. So you can actually, you know, you, you get into the arena and now you can sell to whatever um, institute or organization re that requires it. It also, on the other hand, gives you sort of a bill of health. And, um, you know, that's what people seek. So when someone's actually deploying a, a product that's certified or validated, um, it's the it's the accreditor who actually accredits an entire solution will come back and say, hey, I've got a tick box on this thing. It has FIPS. I'm, I'm happy. I'm good to go. Gives them a level of you know comfort in that sense. Um, I think compliance can be a double edged sword. Um, and it also depends on how you incentivize. So um, if you are very honest and careful about how you look at it again, coming back to the whole security economics of it is that. Back in the day, we used to evaluate against what they call the orange book. And um, at that time, the governments paid for that. So they, they actually paid the fees for the va validation or evaluation against orange book. It changed with common criteria where now vendors have to pay for it themselves. And what that does is it creates the wrong type of incentive. So what happens is suddenly the vendor is actually looking for a path of least resistance um, and they want a smoothest path through certification you know as your sales guys dumping at you saying i need to sell this thing real quick um can you get it through can you you know literally rush it through the certification um and if you're trying to do something along those lines i, I would dare to say that you miss things so you know that bill of health um sometimes might not be worth the piece of paper that it's on so you've got to work out how do you attain a balance between doing proper security engineering versus compliance 
and um, how um, how you manage that. And I think um, we do it pretty well at Entrust because we've actually got independent security engineers or security heads, and um, we try and maintain some kind of separation between the folks who are running the compliance, so you can get some some form of independent view. Um, I know I'm sort of really literally throwing um, rocks at our greenhouse here. So uh, I, I, what, uh, I'd be really intrigued to see what you, you've got to say on this, Anadeep. I think uh, this is, again, you know, from my point of view, I think this is a, the natural push-pull phenomenon in business, right? You know, the desire to go fast uh, is is always going to is going to win as it should. We are in the business of making money for our customers as well as making sure that we deliver value to our customers. And any friction usually gets pushed back. But given the the level of, especially in our industry where your job is to protect your customers, your job is to provide some of this technology for your customers, you cannot just have it as a tick box. You cannot. And you know, I am quite proud to say that the industry at large, not just the cybersecurity industry or the software industry, the industry at large or businesses at large are actually acknowledging it. Yeah, and that we are seeing that is, especially in say the financial institution sectors as well as government or, or even large organizations, folks are like, I will not buy a certain piece of technology if it doesn't meet certain compliance standards. Yeah. Uh, you know, the trend that's happening is that because of talent shortage because of subject matter expertise, they are requesting their vendors to do it. So the push is to the vendor to say, you need to provide me a highly compliant, highly assured system, and please prove to me how you're doing it well. So I think that's, you know, I think it's changing, but it's always been a push and pull, you know, and that's a really, really interesting way of looking at it. Personally, from my point of view, what you mentioned, the separation of the, you know, not to use a, a soccer analogy, cannot be the goalkeeper and the kicker at the same time, you need goalkeeper and a kicker uh, because that's what, that, that's how you're going to be able to do some of this work properly. Absolutely. You brought Sorry. this up before, Pali. One of the things, you know, just it'll be fun to get sort of all of our point of view, Ken, you know, especially from a consumer of technology as well as in an organization, right? So when you think about some of the protective measures, you know, the traditional way of thinking was firewalls and education, etc. You can protect using that, right? There are emerging things, and I shouldn't say emerging. They've been around for a while. They're gaining more notoriety now. Uh, you know, processes and mechanisms like threat hunting, ethical hacking, to actually proactively try to break your systems so you can figure out where the vulnerabilities are. This is this is sort of a very interesting you know mechanism in my point of view, which is trying to protect by trying to break what you have today and finding vulnerabilities proactively. So what do you think about that, Pali? Is that a good idea? Is that something the company should be doing more? Uh, I have my point of view, but I'd love to see what you think. Yeah, I'll put my heart on my sleeve and say we should be doing more. We should actually um, red team uh, our systems. Um, in fact, some of the components that we have um, on the products actually have to go through uh, an external um, penetration test um, before we re-release them. Um, I, I think what we need to do is actually have a model to do that on a continuous basis. Um, and it, it's interesting because we we pen test uh, components. Um, it will be quite a fun exercise in some ways to pen test our people because to my mind, I think that's probably one of the weakest links in any security model is um you know uh, what do we do and uh, you know we 
we noticed that there's a lot of training out there in terms of, hey, how do you protect against fish attacks and things like this? Um, to my mind, I think those reduce in effectiveness the more times you run them because you actually learn to sort of learn patterns and you can actually answer the questions more quickly and then you're not aware or you're not tuned in to anything that might be slightly different or a new type of attack. So the effectiveness is running out. So, hey, hell yeah to red teaming and purple teaming for for not only our components, but if we can do it on our, our, our environments, our sites and people, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that, that's like those uh, those now ubiquitous um, uh, fishing fishing simulations that uh, that employees are getting more and more used to, especially in this uh, in our hybrid world, right? Yeah, um, you know, and and you sort of get that, you sort of feel that little victory when whenever you actually catch one and hit the fish button um, and, and win against the bad guys uh, as an employee, which is kind of fun. So let's talk a little bit about. I think we, there's been a ton of advice, I think, you know, and and perspective on what. Uh, you know, on what, on what enterprises should be thinking about on this, but, you know, let's try to kind of sum it up a little bit. Uh, you know, what, what should be, what should enterprises be thinking about and you know, maybe what barriers are there to, you know, getting where you need to be? So w I think one of the things that you, you mentioned at the very beginning was in, um, in the introduction was uh, the solar winds um, kind of attack. And that for me is a very curious one in the sense that actually um, it's different from many of the others. So we, we have seen, you know, um, so ransomware, we also see people just selling, you know, uh, malware as a service and being able to commoditize attacks. The sunbursts or solar winds uh, attack was very different in that the malware is planted in, you know, it was in situ for a long period of time. It sat dormant in a build environment. And what happened was that, um, when Orion actually released their software, it was basically, or the Orion software was released, it was signed with a legitimate signing key. Um, and for me, that's sort of a, an attack on the build system itself. So again, going back to the, the piece where we're saying, we need to be more vigilant on the infrastructure itself. Now, you know, if you kind of think about it in one way, you're saying, okay, what kind of attack was that? I didn't defend it at the firewall stage. It came in, it was satting, it sat latent on our network somewhere in a build system for a long while, long, you know, much after our IT guys started worrying about any kind of breaches or any kind of people coming in through unprotected ports. Um, so the lesson I've got, or the thing that I feel that we need to be a little more vigilant about is, you know, the whole, supply chain question and um that's something that i i've got a big b in my bonnet about i think we we need to be much better on where we source our components from um how we um, validate the um software not only software it's also the the hardware components that we receive so with you know covid times um we've seen the whole thing about chipageddon there, there's been shortages of chips. Um, what happens is that there's the spin from that is that you get a whole bunch of chips that now are sitting on the gray market and, and purchasers are actually saying, hey, can I get a hold of these chips? Uh, hey, guess what? That's a real fantastic opportunity for me to seed you know, the, the market with fairly fuddy-duddy um, Trojan devices because everyone wants to get hold of them. So, you know, 
we're we're getting desperate to buy stuff which doesn't exist, but we're not getting desperate to actually assess them more carefully. And you know, so supply chain for me <laughs> is a big one. Absolutely. Uh, so one question I have, and Anadeep, I think you touched on this quite a bit, is you know how how do we look beyond the software infrastructure to get security assurance? Where where do we draw those lines of trust? You know, across software, hardware, personnel, etc. A couple of things that you know the way I see it is that organizations need to sort of start understanding the the infrastructure landscape. You know, there, there is a common way of looking at it is like you have the information technology assets, then you have operating technology assets, the traditional IT versus OT. OT, generally speaking, is a lot of operating technology, which is physical in, in nature. And, and you got to take a comprehensive view when, you, you, from an organizational point of view to, be, to not only just protect your IT assets or or like Pali mentioned, the configuration of the set assets, but you got to take a look at both of them. Uh, some of that is from purely like how you actually do it. In my mind, software, the reason software exists is to automate and make things easy that were harder to do in the past. That's what machines are, and software is just sort of manifestation of a machine like that. So I think you got to continue investing in that. There's a lot of innovation that needs to happen there and continues to happen to do that. That plus people and process, I'm, not, I'm stating the obvious, you know, it doesn't work if... Uh, uh, if there's not appropriate people and process controls that are in place as well. And from, from more, more C-suite's point of view, you got to be able to take a look at these and be first believe in it and actually be able to justify the investment uh, from a business case point of view, uh, not just threat mongering saying, hey, if you don't do this, you know, you're going to get sued or you'll leave, lose million dollars, so millions of dollars. But actually take a look at saying this is why it is important. This is brand protection. This is uh, this is around taking a look at uh, at your you know at development of your your talent. It's it's a it's having the appropriate governance and controls in place. So so I don't know if I if that answers the question directly, but it's it's you know looking at the IT and OT world and using software as sort of the equalizer of of automating things and and uh, uh, that were previously a lot more sort of manual in nature. But you got to have a measurement system around this stuff. And if you don't believe in some of these mechanisms, it's very hard for it. If people think of it as only as cost and try to figure out how to get by with bare minimum, you're going to lose. So let's um, let's take a maybe a last last question on this. Um, we'll talk a little bit about people, right? Um, how do we how do we shift or maybe create more balance in the IT security mentality between you know being the hero and saving the day versus getting to that point of no news is good news? From my seat, you got to reward planning and, and protection. You have to, as a CIO, it's my job to make sure it is my ethical and moral obligation and my business obligation to all my stakeholders, my, my colleagues, my customers, my board, my C-suite, my CEO, to be able to put a business case that's meaningful, to be able to say this is not from a point of view of what the return is going to be on. You got to use you know mechanisms like enterprise risk management. You got to have you know internal you know mechanisms to be able to project risk and to say what the benefit of actually protecting against the said risk would be. And don't wait till uh, you know these become uh, uh, you know ransomware etc. are in the popular vernacular. Then you're behind the scenes already. You're behind already. Yeah, you have to address these things proactively. That's job number one from my point of view for leadership to be able to make that case. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's still quite a hard 
thing to to manage though because what you're trying to say is that hey let's be boring and that's really good um no news is awesome um you know if we we can't show that we we've had these hits on our firewall and managed to pair them off um we it's very difficult in the world as i said before where you don't actually have a metric you know um to say how you've defended against things but um as we we have been you know laboring on with this conversation today is actually about architecture infrastructure how we do things and to my mind i think if we were to say measure silence or longer periods of silence uh, as value that that that's probably a good way to look at things and i think there's a lot <laughs> exactly. of new technology that's coming into play you know this is uh, this is not going unnoticed if you see sort of the investment even in the private equity world you know it's it, it, there is more more investment moving towards respond and incident response because that's obvious and understood but you see an equivalent amount in terms of uh, new innovation and investment that's going into building better technology to understand to 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 understand your assets to understand your configurations to protect against that there is a lot of work going on in provide in in for example providing scores which can help CISOs and other organizations measure sort of your readiness for some of this stuff as well. So all is not lost. Uh, I, I think that the all, all this is the, the the tide is lifting everything, but you know, the business decision for C-suite as well as all leadership within the organization comes is, are you balancing one against the other? Or do you have the wherewithal to actually say, you have to invest in both. And the reason is not to just, you know, just to, just to say that we have avoided all risk. This is how businesses are going to succeed in the future. Uh, you know, I like to work with organizations who have a very strong sort of protect and defend and respond. Why? Because that makes my life easy and it provides the value that I need to deliver to my customers that much more easier. So I think that's very important. That's great. That's great. And let's let's stop there. Um, I mean, I feel like I feel like we've learned a, we've learned a ton here. I've learned a ton here, um, and I really appreciated the conversation. Let's wrap up with this question. Um, when you're, as you probably usually do, hanging around with lots of IT people all weekend, um, what's one thing you've learned? What's one thing you're going to talk about um, this weekend that you might want to share? And Polly, let's start with you. So I think one of my things was, again, sort of um, when I was looking at trying to get my head around um, understanding what we're going to be talking about for this podcast is that I came across a book um, called Sandworm by Andy Greenberg. And um, I certainly recommend it because it sort of tells you, traces through some of the history of how um, some fairly pernicious malware got propagated um, sort of through, you know, from the 2014s right up to even now. And that's some of the precursors to solar winds and even our dear friends in, you know, the colonial pipeline. Um, it's a fascinating journey through um, how the hacker mindset works and how we we can try and understand these um, challenges better. But um, I, I think I'm still having sleepless nights from it because it's quite quite a, fright, a frightening story. Um, but it definitely shows that we you know we need to keep our eyes and ears open and. Uh, up again, it's, uh, and the world changes, you know, we're in a landscape that changes. That's why it's super exciting. Andy? So around around the nerd bar that I hang out at, the conversation has been is what's what's Elon going to buy next? 
uh, and, uh, <laughs> and it's it's you know I'm only half joking because you I think this is a, the the conversation around Twitter public speech as well as the freedom of speech, et cetera, is really interesting from, of course, a social point of view, but also from a technology point of view, to be able to say where the innovation needs to go in order to balance some of this stuff. And you know, there's a lot of interesting points of views, uh, which are simply triggered by you know, the simple thought with Elon Musk going, buying Twitter. Uh, and and you know, you know, I'd, I'd end with one of the you know, funny things I shared with my colleagues, it's, it's where, there was a tweet that somebody responded to Elon Musk saying you should go buy Jira next and make it more user-friendly. I personally thought that was really cool because it brings the conversation into the general vernacular to say, oh, crap, I didn't know Jira didn't have very good user experience. And I think that's... So I find those kind of conversations, even if they're a little bit sensationalistic, just thought-provoking and to say, okay, how should we look at it? Because I think that's what they're intended to do. So, so that's what we are talking about, the nerd bar, Ken. <laughs> yeah, and, and Elon Musk is not, nothing but thought-provoking and provocative uh, these days, for sure. Well, thank you, Anadeep. Thank you, Polly. Um, thanks to everyone listening to our podcast. Uh, the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute is here to share news, analysis, insights, and commentary for IT and business leaders charged with protecting and enhancing IT infrastructure. The Cybersecurity Institute leverages insights from Entrust, a global leader in protecting identities, payments, data, and infrastructure. Take a look at our show page for notes and links to our content. Our podcast was produced by Stephen Damone, and thanks for listening. Thank you.